1: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.
2: This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.
3: You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media and beyond. Go to shopify.com B-O-F to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash B-O-F.
4: Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion. Welcome to the B-O-F podcast. It's Friday, September 1st can you believe it's already time for New York Fashion Week? Well, according to Rachel Tastian, there's a good reason why New York Fashion Week isn't the all-important agenda setter it once was. Rachel, a fashion writer for the Washington Post, says that U.S. consumers now take their fashion cues from influencers in social media as much as they do from the runway.
0: Some of the more interesting things happening in American fashion are just outside of Fashion Week. And I just wonder if... American designers feel like, hey, is this really worth it? Is this where my audience is?
4: This week on the BOF podcast, I sit down with Rachel to learn about her personal journey into fashion journalism, hear the backstory behind her cult newsletter, Opulent Tips, and get her take on what we should be looking out for at New York Fashion Week, which still has its exciting, creative moments. You just need to know where to look. Here's Rachel Tastian on the BOF podcast. Rachel, Tashian, welcome to the BOF podcast. I think this is the first time we are having a one-on-one conversation, although we've seen each other over the years at Fashion Weeks and chit-chatted in various contexts. This is our first one-on-one chat.
0: It's our first tete-a-tete.
4: Yes, exactly. A great way of setting this up, actually, because I've so enjoyed all of your output, going all the way back to your time, at GQ actually and just you know reading your perspectives on the fashion industry and seeing that shift over to Harper's Bazaar and now with this fancy new job you have at the Washington Post it's just been such a pleasure to have a voice like yours in our industry so i'm really excited about this conversation before we get into the various roles that you've taken on in fashion i always like to understand and hear someone's backstory. And I know you studied English in university, and it sounds like it was quite a serious English degree. So it always begs the question, how did you go from a BA in English to public relations to kind of serious, thoughtful, considered fashion journalism?
0: Because I loved reading about fashion. I was not someone who grew up looking at a lot of fashion magazines. I came very late to the understanding of photography and styling and hair and makeup. Those were things that I learned, like, at the beginning of my fashion writing career. But when I was in high school and college, I obsessively read Robin Gavon and Kathy Horn and Judith Thurman, who was at The New Yorker at the time, And in fact, I was a big vintage clothing person. So maybe that's why I wasn't so interested in the like sort of contemporaneous styling and, and that sort of whole world. But I just recall reading Judith Thurman's writing and thinking, wow, this is really wild that you can cover fashion in this way. And then of course, this was the time when Kathy was doing On the Runway, the New York Times fashion blog. And then Robin was dissecting the clothing of politicians in this incredibly groundbreaking way. And all of those things were very interesting to me, you know, like the prestige of the New Yorker, the intersection of politics and aesthetics and appearance. And then of course, Kathy being so like nitty gritty and in many ways, like very forward thinking with having this blog. So that was really, I was more interested in fashion writing than I was even in the world of fashion at first. But what was apparent to me is that, you know, this was the time when Leandra was doing um, Man Repeller and Tavi was doing Style Rookie, and Brian Boy was like sort of anointed as this king of fashion in a way. So I was like, well, I guess the way you get into all of this is to start a fashion blog, which is what I did. And I guess just the thing I started to feel more and more like while I was working at, you know, I was at Vanity Fair in the public relations department for many years. And I just started to feel this urgency that if I don't write about fashion for a living, even if no one reads it, and not even as my full way of making a living, I just don't know how I'll exist. (laughs) And I think that's sort of what pulled me through from doing this English degree, growing up reading these really amazing writers, to then working in PR, then finally sort of Becoming a writer full time.
4: Do you identify now as like a fashion critic? I was looking at a bunch of the media and interviews that you've done, and sometimes people call you a critic. Do you identify that way?
0: I think I do, yeah. It's a somewhat like elastic term, and it's something that is definitely within the parameters of my current job. When I was at GQ, it was very interesting. I had been there for a couple of years, and Will called me and said, you know, I think we'd like to change your title to fashion critic, Will Welch, who is the editor-in-chief of GQ. And I thought, oh, are you sure that's what it should be? Maybe it should be correspondent or writer or, and, and I don't know why I felt that discomfort with that term. And actually the discomfort was that I have such a reverence for that term.
4: Maybe slight imposter syndrome or something, like me, fashion critic?
0: Yeah. It's something I consider an important part of my job, but also I think the reporting background and aspect of what I do, I also find really essential. And is also why I like my current and most recent role so much, because that is a huge emphasis at the post.
4: So when you mention names like Kathy Horn or Robin Gavon, who've been like critics... In the kind of traditional sense of the word, fashion critics, you know, reviewing shows, analyzing collections through whatever lens, cultural lens or historical lens or industry lens. What do you see as the role of a fashion critic now in the context of fast paced media, social media, everyone has access to this imagery now. It's not something that very few people see, and then you release a few images in a newspaper, which is how it was when I first started reading Kathy back in 2005. Now everyone sees fashion. So what's the role of the critic now?
0: Perhaps this is um, an unsurprising answer, but I think that that availability of all of the information means that we need criticism probably more than ever before. And I think that that's really exciting, not only for younger people, but also it's very interesting and fantastic to me that in the world of fashion, you have people like Tim and Kathy and Robin who have been covering the shows for decades and they're still writing really interesting and important and provocative criticism. That's not really true in any other kind of medium. So I think about my role One, as to provide kind of an insider perspective or context. You know, I was actually at this show and here's how this felt to be sitting in that room. But I think it's also to provide context and knowledge and thinking about my experiences, especially as someone who grew up learning about fashion from Instagram and from style.com. And obviously I've been going to fashion shows at this point for several years, but my knowledge was built from digital experience, like thinking about how that shapes my perspective, because it's similar to the perspective of a lot of people my age and younger. And I think it's something that a lot of designers are in dialogue with now, whether they want to be or not. So being able to both like sit in the room, but then also understand that a lot of people are seeing this through Instagram or streaming on Prada.com, and how that whole kind of experience shapes the creation of fashion the production of fashion the reception of it this is such a millennial answer but so much of it is about how old i am <laughs> <laughs> i'm like wow like i have this really special and rare post at this huge newspaper with this monumental audience where i get to interpret and contextualize fashion and i know what a rare opportunity that is. And I think a lot of what I bring to that is like, not just having like a sense of humor and being a skeptical person, but also the way that I learned about fashion and the way that I primarily to this day receive it.
4: What's it like writing for a serious newspaper like the Washington Post for a very general mass audience versus writing for a glossy fashion title like GQ or Bazaar, which are almost by definition, people who are you know, interested in fashion. Has that changed? Has the context of being in this like very serious, august newspaper and the audience that you're writing for changed the way you're thinking about your criticism?
0: Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I think I'm always like, you know, going into this season and this will be my first official season that I'm covering fashion in September. I went to some of the men's shows in Paris, but that was more sort of to feel out the Pharrell scene and that sort of thing. But I think, you know, I'm always going to be attached to wanting to write about smaller designers or things that feel more niche because we need, like, as an industry, that audience of really rabid and obsessive fashion fans like, those people are fantastic. And a lot of those people are... Increasingly, those people are not the people who are, quote-unquote, inside the fashion industry. I mean, a lot of my readers are people who are a part of high-fashion Twitter, who don't go to fashion shows, who've never been invited to a fashion show. You know, that's the next generation of kind of, like, rabid fashion consumers who are going to consume fashion in a different way than we do. It may not even be through buying something. It could be completely different experience. but that idea that you're talking about of writing for the wider audience, actually that has allowed me to think about fashion in the way I like thinking about it most, which is, it actually is very relevant to these much larger conversations that are happening in culture and politics and society in general. You know, the first piece that I wrote, which is much indebted to this podcast actually, was about the Carl Lagerfeld show at the Met and this feeling among a lot of people that, hey, this guy said a lot of really troubling things. And that's just not a part of this show. And should it be a part of this show? And, you know, that was the first piece that I wrote. And and I felt like, oh, this is an opportunity to take this person who in many ways was like the emblem of fashion elitism and sort of explain how he is relevant to so much that is happening in the world. And so many of the kind of, cultural debates that we're having in museums and institutions and in the elections in the United States. So I find that kind of thinking actually really, really liberating.
4: And you're referencing this podcast because that Tim had that conversation with Andrew Bolton around the exhibition where they did talk a little bit about how the thinking behind how to address, or in this case, not address some of Carl's maybe more questionable Comments in the context of today's culture. One of the other conversations that we're all having around fashion right now, and you just you know alluded to it, was you know the Pharrell moment at Louis Vuitton back in June in Paris. How do you see this growing convergence between fashion and other cultural pillars like music, entertainment, Hollywood? sports, you know, all of these pillars of culture and, you know, fashion now that it's so open has become one of these pillars. And in a way it sits right in the center of it all. Like it's connected to everything. How is that changing fashion? And what does having someone like Pharrell at the helm of Louis Vuitton menswear signal about the fashion industry today?
0: It's such a great question. So when Robin Gavon and I were leaving the sort of Burrell LV extravaganza, she said to me, I can't tell if fashion and celebrity have gone so far that they've just sort of exhausted their relationship and that's kind of passe, or we're entering this new and uncharted territory in which they will be more enmeshed than ever before. And to me, it seems it's certainly the latter, with the caveat that there are probably very few celebrities who could pull off what... Pharrell is doing in terms of influence and their knowledge of fashion and their interest in fashion. Because you do have to have a sustained interest to do a project like that, to be the creative director of Weton Men's. But it's not just this idea that celebrities could be the designers. Like so much more maybe is being asked of the brand ambassador. I was really fascinated by this season of the Kardashians and the way that it dealt with this intense relationship that that family has developed with Dolce and Gabbana and this idea that Dolce and Gabbana would sort of quote unquote do the costumes for Courtney's wedding to me that seems like the way that fashion in many ways is going or having Kim Kardashian sort of curate a collection or creative director collection. I actually, I thought that collection was one of the most fun things they've done in a long time. I loved that. (laughs) And then I also think, and we'll see how this plays out in the season, but I am getting the sense, um, and I'm curious what you're hearing about this as well, that this is going to be kind of an unprecedented season in terms of celebrity presence at Fashion Week because with the strikes going on, these are things that celebrities can promote these relationships that they have with fashion brands. And it's very beneficial to celebrities to have those relationships. One, because it provides them with a huge slice of their income at this point. But also fashion has this really interesting ability to recontextualize someone we think we know really well. Like Margot Robbie during the Barbie press tour, wearing these kind of fun, campy, Scoparelli and hot pink Chanel and that sort of thing all of a sudden we're thinking, oh, this is a woman who has a really fun and playful understanding of fashion. So I think that it will be interesting to see like this season, how that plays out and then moving forward, like how do those relationships deepen? Because I think that that is what is going to happen, whether we want that or not.
4: We'll be right back with more on the BOF podcast.
2: Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.
1: Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.
4: So that kind of addresses the kind of celebrification of fashion in a way and like this merging of fashion and celebrity culture, which I agree is fascinating. And and like you, I was in LA a few weeks ago and heard from a lot of the agents and Hollywood people that if we think the front rows of Paris and Milan Fashion Week were celebrity driven before, like this is going to put all of that to pale in comparison. So there's the celebrity force that's shaping fashion. There's also something else that I've seen that you've been thinking about a lot, which is on my mind, which is clearly the business. Of fashion and how, like, the growing scale of this industry, maybe something you might call the merchification of fashion, that, like, the productization, the whole, like, system of churning out all of this stuff sneakers and sweatshirts and merch and I hear so many different perspectives on this. Like people have been around the industry for a long time and say fashion is just not the same as it used to be. And it's lost, you know, what made it special. There's no emphasis on quality anymore. There's too many brands. There's too many products, which I think there's a degree of truth to that. But then there's the other side of the argument, which is like fashion has become this pillar of culture because it's such a big business, because it's engaging with so many people. And it's the business side of the industry that sustains creativity that enables us as an industry to employ and give opportunities to all of these designers and creative people. So there's this like very interesting tension because when I first came into this industry, it was really clear that it was the creative people that were calling the shots. They were the power players. It was the designers that were in the driver's seat. And it feels like compared to say Hollywood or the music industry where the business side has always been almost an equal footing with the creative side, fashion's starting to get to that same situation now. Does the increasing commercialization of fashion take away from the core creativity or is it enabling it?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's such a tough thing to consider because let's think about maybe what Demna's going through right now. He was sort of ahead of the curve on all of this, right? Like I keep thinking about going into this season, that Simpsons and red carpet show which was so fun and so hilarious. And like, remember the feeling that this whole red carpet is happening and you're putting together in your head that this is the show. And it was so funny and it was dark, but it was embracing the darkness of this kind of fashion is the red carpet. It is just the commercial presentation. It is this one image that is sent out to countless people around the world. I was reading an interview, I think it was in Le Monde, shortly after the Couture show where he said, I don't know why people associate my brand with Kim Kardashian. She only carried handbags of mine a few times, like there's so much more to the brand. And I agree, there is so much more to the brand. But he also made this like brilliant statement of dressing her for the Met Gala in what I consider to be the greatest Met Gala look of all time, where she is the kind of this void. She's merely her silhouette or her shape. She's the most immediate and recognizable person in the world. And he commented on that so brilliantly. So I think there are designers who are feeling like, I am happy to embrace the commercial side of this, but I also want to be understood as a creative person. And I think, I wonder if that's really the balance. This is something that doesn't seem to bother Jonathan Anderson existentially. Like he's sort of really like cracked this that you can make really compelling product, but that can also be a commentary on how product driven or even merchified this world has become. And I think fashion is about contradiction and irrationality and double standards. And I think our, uh, some of our, most of our smartest designers know that and want to play with it however much it might bother them or not bother them. Does that make sense?
4: It makes perfect sense. And it's interesting that you bring up Jonathan and Demna, possibly two of the most talented like designers that are working in fashion today. But I'm also wondering who you think is really leading fashion right now. You know, there was that time in 2008 when Phoebe dropped her Celine collection and it kind of changed the whole aesthetic of fashion across the board. Then there was Alessandro Michele's Gucci, which kind of brought in a new, like, maximalist, gender-fluid aesthetic. Demna did the same thing when he started Balenciaga. Like, who is the designer that you think is defining fashion at this moment?
0: I think it's Jonathan. And I also think it's Demna with his couture collections. What I love about what Jonathan is doing is I, at first, I hated it. And it's really, like, what's hateable anymore, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, and it's hard to elicit that reaction from someone, you know? And so the first time that he sort of took this in the midst of the pandemic, I suppose this would have been 2021, that he took this very sudden cerebral turn away from handcraft and leather towards these super synthetic objects instead of clothes, I was like, this is repulsive. (laughs) And then a few months later, I was thinking, that's the one I'm still thinking about, you know? So
4: let's turn our attention to New York Fashion Week. As someone who's like based in the U.S., you know, it feels to me like post-pandemic, Paris has kind of surged in terms of its importance, relevance, Centrality to the fashion system. Likewise, Milan with all of those big Italian brands and the big anchors like Gucci and you know rising brands like Zegna and Laura Piana and Cuccinelli and that quiet luxury movement. Milan has kind of found its feet after having some bumpy ups and downs when people were like wondering like what's happening in Milan. But both London and New York, I feel like they're kind of still struggling to find their post pandemic identity, and I'm curious with someone who's got a much better handle on the New York fashion scene than I do. Like, how have things changed in New York in the fashion scene since COVID? Who's really exciting you at the moment? And like, where do you think things are gonna shake out between the other major capitals in New York?
0: During this sort of COVID, like, okay, it's calmed enough that we can have fashion shows. And then right after that, we're going to (laughs) sort of repeat this cycle. I think a lot of New York designers who are younger and would have gotten lost in the calendar before were sort of feeling like this is my moment to have a fashion show and make a big statement. There's a very small brand called Saint Sintra that was started by a young woman who used to work for Tom Brown. And she had this very cool, quirky fashion show in like a tiki bar And that was the show that everyone seemed to be really excited about in September 2021 before we had the the teen American themed Matt Gala. So, you know, like someone much smaller was able to capture the conversation. And and the other big show that season that everyone was really excited about was Raul Lopez's Loire comeback. And that was when he launched the Anna bag, you know, and the Anna bag becomes this new thing and sort of this is the next Telfar bag. So it does feel like These smaller or more emerging brands are dominating because we don't have a lot of the larger brands showing. We do have Ralph Lauren will be back this season at the beginning of the season. And Michael Kors, of course, will show. But Tom Ford is doing their debut in Milan. And I think a lot of American designers, you know, as you said, are still sort of looking at Paris as, oh, well, that's really where I want to be. And I don't know if this is the fault of the fashion calendar or if it's something specific to American consumers, but a lot of shoppers in America, people who are buying a lot of fashion, are not necessarily taking their cues from runway shows or a fashion calendar, which is, I think, more traditional in Milan and in Paris, where you have this deep cultural attachment to fashion, and where it's kind of respected as a national art form and something like champagne that like needs to be protected. <laughs> you know, when I look at TikTok, for example, which I look at quite a lot, the brands that a lot of women are responding to are still things that they're hearing about through influencers or through Instagram. And a lot of times those brands don't really have fashion shows. I would say the one brand that seems to have bridged that divide is Kate. She's someone who, like, at Harper's Bazaar, we adored her work. Like, we talked about it a lot. Everyone was wearing it to the office. We put it in the magazine quite a bit. But then it's also something that when I see, like, a young woman who's saying, hey, I found the best boot ever, and I'm going to share it with you on TikTok, it's almost always Kate. And I think because it's product-oriented, you know, it like, it shoots really well from an e-commerce perspective. So it fits into your wardrobe, but it's a little more interesting than something that is super basic. And it has this like pretty wild aesthetic. I mean, this, I don't know if you've visited her store yet.
4: I have, yeah. On Mercer Street, right?
0: Yeah, it's wild. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's not like a product-oriented mindset. It's just that like fashion- From the runway perspective, I think a lot of consumers in the U.S. don't necessarily learn about it or follow it that way.
4: Yeah, and this is where I think it comes back to this whole celebrity culture thing, right? Like they learn about brands often through what celebrities are wearing and talking about on social channels. And that might be the first time they hear of Loewe or Balenciaga or one of these brands. And so there's a different route into it. I just, there was a time when I feel like American Designers had something to really say in terms of driving the overall. You know, it was the first place where you'd see new trends in the season emerge. And somehow now, maybe from my vantage point here in London, I don't see that as much. I'm coming back this season, so I'm looking forward to kind of getting a sense firsthand again. You know, I came for one season. I think it was the first February when you could kind of come back. I missed that September 2021 moment. I came for fashion week in February, 2022. And it was, it just felt like a really different New York fashion week. It felt very diffused all over the city. Before, when you came to New York, you knew it was fashion week. And now it seems like the taxi drivers don't know it's fashion week anymore because it hasn't taken over the city in the same way it used to.
0: Yeah. And some of the more interesting things happening in American fashion are just outside of fashion week, you know, Mark Jacobs doesn't show on the calendar anymore, but when you're watching that show, it feels like you've just opened an enormous bottle of sparkling water and poured it over your head. It's very like, wow, this is really exciting. And that still feels exciting in agenda setting or, you know, Telfar doesn't, I mean, he's usually does some kind of event, but he's not doing traditional sort of fashion shows in that way. I mean, I just wonder if American designers feel like, hey, is this really worth it? Is this where my audience is?
4: Yeah. And I think there are so many different ways to connect with customers now. So Rachel, if you were advising me on one new designer that I may not have seen or gotten to know yet in New York during this Fashion Week season, who, who should I see?
0: Form. Have you seen form yet?
4: No, I haven't seen, but I've been reading and watching. Why Form.
0: So it's a a brand designed by Paul Halbers, who used to be at Vuitton and designed menswear for the row. So he brings a lot of that technical know-how from these very hands-on brands and also a real knowledge and appreciation of materials and creates these incredibly distilled Seemingly simplistic, but like you notice the smallest detail, and then that suddenly you realize that defines the entire piece in this very beautiful way. And he's extremely exacting. He kind of reminds me of Reynolds Woodcock from Phantom
4: Thread. That's a very obscure reference, by the way, because I don't know how many people <laughs> have seen that. But I got instantly what you meant. <laughs>
0: That's funny. Kathy Horn has made fun of me before because she's like, "Yeah, you seem to be really into Phantom Thread. It's a little bizarre." <laughs> um, but what's especially interesting about it to me is that it doesn't necessarily read online. And he's done presentations for the past, I think 3 seasons, and this season he's actually doing a show. And I'm very interested in designers who feel committed to making clothing that doesn't really scan digitally. Because, you know, if you look at something like Kate, it photographs really wonderfully. Like when you go on Netaporte or you go on Kate's website, you're like, yeah, this looks really great. It looks so stylish. I can easily imagine it. It's hard to appreciate the details of something like form online. But then when you see it in person, it's very exciting. And I think that there have always been designers who are like that even before we had e-commerce and Instagram and streaming fashion shows and that sort of thing. But it's really interesting for a designer to be committed to that in this era. And it can become a kind of statement, I think. You know, I was really interested to see Phoebe Philo's website and everyone was sort of, this is a website? You know, it looked kind of 1.0. And I sort of wonder if that's, an. I mean, you have to assume even with her that that's an aesthetic choice that it's supposed to look digitally unsavvy or non-native online. And mm-hmm. I could see that emerging as as a sort of theme of this season or, or next season, especially if that's what Phoebe ends up doing, because everyone, of course, goes the way she goes.
4: Yeah, that's going to be really interesting to see. That's supposed to happen in September too. We would not be complete in our conversation with you on the BOF podcast if we didn't talk a little bit about opulent tips. Oh, yeah. I've only recently become a subscriber. Thank you for including me. But how and why do you do that newsletter on top of everything else that you have to do? I mean, you're a busy person, but you still make time for this newsletter. Like, what's the why behind it?
0: You know, at first it was a pandemic project. I started it at the end of 2020. And a lot of people were starting Substack newsletters. And I felt like at that time, you know, I was only covering menswear. So I was working for GQ. And I felt like at that time, there was a conversation missing in women's wear that was niche and small and passionate and unapologetically excited about fashion, not guilty about being into it. <laughs> And also, you know, we had this thinking that's always really influenced me at GQ where a lot of us would go to market editing meetings. Will would like pull all these random people into the room and he would always say to us, but would you actually wear this or would you actually use this? And that was really the litmus test for a lot of the clothes that we put in the magazine and shot. And, you know, we put a lot of freaky clothes in there. So that was really meaningful to have that conversation. And I felt like a lot of Women's wear shopping advice or product recommendations that I was seeing at that time were not really driven by that thinking of like okay, but would I, have I actually tried this? Have I seen it? Do I like it and appreciate it? And then I think also that, as I'm sure you sort of noticed, I like these smaller brands that don't really show during Fashion Week, like Casey Casey and Sarah Lanzi, Pero, which is an Indian brand that I really love, Dosa. And, you know, I felt like, oh, it could be kind of fun to have a little space where I can talk about those things and maybe introduce those brands to some people who maybe wouldn't come across them.
4: I love Perot. I've been collecting pieces from Anit Aurora in my closet for many, many years. Such a special brand. And, you know, really popular in Japan, actually.
0: Wow. That's cool.
4: Yeah. Because I think the Japanese have this like really interesting fascination with things that are executed really well in any specific genre. And that in that genre of Indian inspired, embroidered, imperfect, but like perfect in whatever way you want to call it. Like they really understand that Perot is like the pinnacle of that. There's obviously lots of brands out there that are in that space now, Harago and Karu Research and Bodhi in New York, but Perot is kind of the pinnacle, I think.
0: It's really good.
4: What do you think of the newsletter as a fashion medium? And, like, you know, how do you think about engaging with your newsletter readers that is different from the way you engage with, you know, your Washington Post readers?
0: I think that the newsletter in fashion has been such a great and exciting sort of addition to the whole conversation. You know, it's funny in a way, to me, it makes it even clearer what a magazine's purpose is. There was this great story in the New York Times earlier this month about how the new women's fashion magazine is the shopping newsletter or the Substack that like explains what to buy and that sort of thing. And I thought that that was a really interesting article, but it did miss sort of one piece for me, which is that we look to fashion magazines as well to sort of introduce us to this world and the photographers and the stylists and to give us... Inspiration and tantalize our minds, and that sort of thing. And I try to do some of that in my newsletter or encourage people to be interested in that side of fashion and, like, oh, you should be, you know, looking at these photographers or look at the store that this really important florist had in the 1950s who was really influential. So I think that is one thing that I try to do in my newsletter, which doesn't always make it into the reporting and criticism that I might do for the post. Also, I'm a little bit more skeptical in the things that I'm covering maybe for the newspaper, whereas like the newsletter is like just my taste. It's less driven by what's happening in the world and more just sort of like, I feel like a teenager in my room, like tacking up posters or something like that, you know? Yeah. What, what other
4: newsletters do you read?
0: I love Laura Riley's magazine. It's spelled like the French magazine.
4: <laughs> um, Magasin, which means store.
0: Yeah. And I love Becky Malinsky's newsletter, Five Things. Obviously, I love Lauren's newsletter, although she won't tell you what to buy. And I also really like Leandra Medine's cereal aisle newsletter. I mean, she just has such an incredible eye. And I still learn about designers who I've never heard of before, from her, which is always such an exciting feeling.
4: So if people want to sign up for your newsletter, how do they do that?
0: So you there's no sign up form. This is like a complete boneheaded thing that I did. I thought it would be cool to just send it out from my Gmail instead of using a platform. And I do like that that feels very like bespoke and friendly and that's how I want it to feel, but it also has made it incredibly difficult for people to sign up for the newsletter. And what started as a joke about it's an exclusive newsletter, wink, wink, is now it actually, unfortunately, does seem more exclusive than it really is. So you just have to DM me and I'll add you. It's that easy.
4: Okay, well, you heard it here. It's Profit Pizza, right, on Instagram? Yes, right. All right. DM Rachel at Profit Pizza. I just wanted to end the conversation by seeking a bit of your advice. And there's a lot of people listening to this podcast that might've been like you back when you were voraciously consuming the articles written by Kathy and and Robin and others. And now they're following you in the same way that you followed Kathy and, and Robin. Like what advice do you have for young people who are interested in a career in fashion journalism or criticism? And like what habits and practices should they form now in order to prepare them for this fascinating world that you and I are both lucky to be a part of?
0: I would say my number one piece of advice would be to think of yourself as a journalist and think of yourself as a gatherer of research and information, knowing that there will always be more to discover of someone's work or someone's writing or someone's creative projects and having an insatiable curiosity and the confidence to ask questions about those sorts of things. And I often will tell younger people who ask me for advice, they'll ask, you know, I want to start a Substack or something like that. And my advice is always to develop your interview skills, get to sort of know who the characters are in the fashion world who you're interested in. And very often, if you reach out to those people, they will actually talk to you, (laughs) which is very interesting. I remember when Pam Boy was doing, I think his first edition of Screenshot, which is his zine, he just DM'd Mark Jacobs and said, can I interview you? And Mark said, of course. It's a very closed world, but also people respond to curiosity and inquisitiveness. There is this kind of interest in fashion commentary and fashion criticism, but that to me is like an essential skill of being a great critic. Like think of how much knowledge Tim has when he gets to the show because he's asked so many questions. He's interviewed so many people. He's listened to every single Bay City Rollers album. So when the soundtrack comes on, (laughs) he knows that information. I think that is such an under appreciated aspect of the job. And it's something also that will enrich your work and make it even more fun and lead you down ever more interesting paths.
4: Thank you so much, Rachel, for spending time with us, for sharing that advice and all of your amazing perspectives. I'm sad you and I haven't had a chance to talk like this before, but I hope it's not the last conversation. And I'd be interested in like having a download with you After the season is done. So um, I look forward to seeing you in New York during Fashion Week. And in the meantime, good luck with all those fashion show requests.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much.
4: The BOF podcast is edited and produced by Emma Clark and Eric Bria in the BOF studio team.
1: Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.
2: Small
0: details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust Oleum's new Custom Spray 5 in 1 gives you control with five different spray patterns, so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5 in 1, only from Rust Oleum.
2: Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. Good credit. From a local business to a global corporation partnering with bank of america gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools award-winning insights and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move
3: matter visit bank of banking for business to learn more what would you like the power to do bank of america na
2: copyright 2024